Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hi, everyone. Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth at Petro Medical, and I'm here in sunny Las Vegas at the American Burn Association Annual Meeting, and I'm joined here with Dr. Philip Chang, who's been gracious enough to uh, join us and provide his insights on what he's learning and some exciting things that we're seeing in the field of burn. So a little background on Dr. Chang. So Dr. Chang is an assistant professor of surgery in the Division of Trauma, Burns, and Critical Care and Acute Surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College and an assistant attending surgery at New York Presby Hospital. Uh, He's double board certified surgeon and critical care intensivist. He also specializes in treatment of burns of all types for adults and children, um, as well as surgical critical care, burn reconstruction, laser treatment of burn scars, and selected selected skin conditions. So, Dr. Chang, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Omar. Thanks to you and the audience for listening. So, Dr. Chang, you know, first question I want to you know start with if you can kind of give us a little bit more background because not everybody who goes into medical school decides that they want to go and specialize in burn what was it about burn that you know drew you towards it because these are the most critically sensitive patients you know in the hospital absolutely um I had I was inspired to go into burn surgery after doing a burn rotation at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago at the time I was a second year general surgery resident very uncertain about what I wanted to do I spent six of the most intense informative weeks of my life in that burn unit um, in that unit I was very fortunate to meet one of the giants of burn surgery Richard Gamelli who really in my mind was the complete package he um, ran a burn unit took amazing care of patients formed a burn team that delivered the top-notch care for these patients he also um, was an amazing surgeon to watch in the operating room. Um, He also was a great intensivist, researcher, and I had never seen someone with such deep relationships with patients. There have been burn patients who have been following for two decades and just would hug him every time they saw him in clinic. After spending that six weeks there, I was just hooked on burns and thought, if I could do one-tenth of the good that Dr. Gmelly had done at his time, I would consider my life fulfilled. And thanks to him, I was able to start on a career in burns and have just been thankful every day for the chance to be uh, able to care for burn patients all over the U.S. And so, you know, in your practice, how have you seen the evolution of of treatment of burn patients go in the last few years? We are in an especially fruitful time over the past years. There are a number of evolutions and revolutions, frankly, happening in all aspects of burn care. As a surgeon especially, we've been blessed with an explosion of new products over the past 10 years that we in the field are trying to figure out how to make use of. A few of these products are being featured here at the American Burn Association, but they include things such as new um, dermal substitutes, um, op- um, new ways to expand skin, including Meeks technique and quote-unquote spray-on skin as well as combining techniques in new ways. In addition, we also have new techniques for assessing burn depth more accurately and to really also track the quality improvements and outcomes of all the burn team efforts. Now, as a surgeon, you know, it's more than just what you see, you know, at the level of the skin. A lot of these patients require a lot of intensive treatment and follow-up afterwards. So from the physiological standpoint, you know, what do these patients look like after they get, you know, they get, they get you know, through the, through the traumatic event of the burns and they get, they get surgery? Absolutely. So this is where there, these, there's stratification in terms of kind of degree of burn injury. So patients who tend to have more superficial burns will often heal without scarring, but at the same time there's often um, 
for genetic reasons and other factors that we don't always understand. There can be scarring even for those quote-unquote less deep burns. Then for the patients who do suffer the large body burns, let's say greater than 40% of the body, these are the patients that we um, can struggle with and who often have the disfiguring and life-changing scars that not only affect their appearance, but also affect their function and their quality of life in so many ways. It's also, beyond the scars, there's also issues with chronic pain, chronic itching, and not as well as the psychological trauma. There's also issues with reintegration back into their family life, into their communities and social life, as well as reintegration back into becoming productive citizens of our society. So these are uh, challenges that are not just part of the surgeon's bailiwick, but as well as all members of the burn team, including social workers, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, it really does take a village of burn specialists to care for each burn patient. Interesting. Now, as a surgeon, you know, leading this, the surgical team, it seems that you're definitely the point person, the catalyst for all of these events to go start moving forward successful. What does it take to be a good burn surgeon after the surgery is done, discharging the patient so they move forward in these next steps? Um, I think every burn surgeon I have been fortunate to, tr to train with, as well as that I've met through the American Burn Association and other burn groups, um, their commitment and their passion to really making the lives better for their burn patients. Uh, Steve Wolf, the current president of the American Burn Association, just delivered a presidential address where he basically challenged the burn community to you know, keep um, looking for new ways to, you know, commit to improving the lives of our burn patients. In a nutshell, that's what he is, uh, says is the mission of the burn community in the United States and the world. And I think that is the nutshell of what m makes a burn surgeon outstanding for the care of their patients. That commitment to making every aspect of the burn survivor's life better. Interesting. Why do you think he, he said that? Why do you think he challenged the, the associations with that statement? Excellent. Um, in our complex healthcare environment, there are so many distractions that challenge um, and can distract us from this core mission. You know, our home hospitals are always, um, you know, challenging us to improve our, you know, productivity or to generally find new sources of revenue. There can also be challenges with electronic health records, not to mention the sheer volume of patients that we see. So. It's important to have that shining light to guide us through all of these various challenges that you know, are very important to deal with, but at the same time can sometimes distract us from our core mission of taking care of our burn patients. And now, just in general, for, for some of the audiences, we definitely have a lot, a lot of medical students and residents who do listen to this program. You know, generally speaking, how long, how long is a burn patient in your care as a surgeon? One of the rules of thumb that has stood for a long time is that for roughly every 1% of the body surface area burned, we usually assume at least one day in the burn ICU. And this rule of thumb can obviously uh, be modified, especially if the patient has multiple medical comorbidities or if they're more complex injuries. But that rule of thumb has held steady for the past five decades. So for example, a burn patient who's suffered maybe 80% TBSA burns over their body, we roughly expect that they'll be in the burn unit for two and a half to three months. But that doesn't include the time that these patients will often need in rehabilitation or inpatient therapy, and then the recovery time where they will need to continue working with outpatient therapists as well as psychologists and psychiatrists to make a meaningful recovery. Um, so, you know, compare, I, I think all medicine, uh, you would agree, is, is, is definitely emotionally laborious work, you know. There's a lot of emotional labor that goes into it. But it seems definitely so with, with burn patients because of how traumatic it was. 
what, what was the event or what story is there that, that really turned you on into saying that you want to dedicate your, your life's work to these type of patients? Um, when I um, was in burn fellowship training at the Shriners Hospital in Northern California, I had the privilege of taking care of a young boy who had suffered burns over 95% of his body. He was in the hospital almost over 400 days. And despite the prolonged period in the hospital, um, he never gave up. He always you know, kept talking about his desire to leave the hospital and be able to go back home. And it was just so life-enriching and inspiring to see that he was able to survive the grievous injury he had suffered and to make it back home. And I had the opportunity to see him in the outpatient clinic a couple times after he was discharged and see that he was able to enjoy a, a wonderful quality of life with his family, albeit with many challenges, but seeing that recovery was possible and that patients' lives are able to you know, continue. Um, was incredibly inspiring to me and gives me the um, inspiration as well as the realization that there's much work for us in the burn community to do. Now, you know, one, one paper I read of yours which I found very interesting was, I believe when you were a resident you wrote a paper on, on fluid resuscitation, mm -hmm. correct? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what are, the, what are some of the important keys and hallmarks of good fluid resuscitation when it comes to these burn patients? Mm -hmm. So past pioneers in the burn field, um, notably Charlie Baxter and Tom Shires, um, had established a lot of the key work back in the 60s um, detailing the need for um, massive fluid resuscitation for patients with large burn injuries. That was really one of the key pillars that helped dramatically improve burn of the realization that uh, fluid resuscitation was necessary. Over time, um, we've had a number of debates and changes in the field in terms of whether what fluid we should be using, should we be using albumin. Uh, more recently, there have been developments in terms of using computer-guided algorithm systems such as the Arcos Navigator to help guide fluid resuscitation. Um, one of the most exciting developments that was just talked about this meeting yesterday was the fact there is a multi-center clinical trial being sponsored through the American Burn Association to really look at this issue, like what, what are the benefits of um, adding colloid and crystalloid resuscitation for burn patients, and can we definitively show the benefits of, of a mixed approach? Um, despite this, there are still uh, complications that occur through our aggressive fluid resuscitation, compartment syndromes, um, lung injury, sometimes acute kidney injury, as well as other organ failures. So there's still much work to be done in terms of our um, knowledge and use of fluid resuscitation for our burn patients. So let's talk about that and, and, and maybe you know, sort of rope it back to the theme about the challenge uh, that was put to the ABA of constantly innovating. So uh, compartment syndrome, let's, let's start there. What's, what's the issue with compartment syndrome in terms of the complications? So, so this, especially for our medical students in the audience, um, there are a number of compartments in the body which are enclosed either with a tight fascial covering such as the muscle compartments in the lower extremity or our abdomen which is encased you know, in the peritoneal or in our brains which are encased with skull. And, um, with a large fluid resuscitation, there's often um, edema that forms in these various compartments. And if, there, if you have this expansion, but you're limited in terms of expansion by the tight sheath, um, the increased pressure then in turn can block off venous outflow. And then if the pressure is a little high enough, it can block in arterial inflow. And this can lead to permanent damage to muscles, 
nerves, in the case of the lower extremities, or in the case of the, of, of the abdomen, that can lead to damage to the kidneys as well as impairment or respiration. Or in the case of the brain, it can lead to um, permanent brain injury. So all of these compartments are at risk when a patient is receiving massive fluid resuscitation. To put things in perspective, um, a say a 70 kilogram adult who suffers like a say a 70% TVC burn might end up getting uh, upwards of more than 20 liters of IV fluids in the first 24 hours of their fluid resuscitation. If you think about it, that's adding almost 50 pounds of water to the patient's intravascular space. And, um, you know, for almost any other patient medicine, giving more than, say, you know, two liters of fluid can often make clinicians nervous. So when you're delivering, you know, dozens and dozens of liters of fluid, that can really affect the patient's physiology adversely. Interesting. So you know, and I, I could be I could be completely off on this on this uh, number, but I know that usually you know when you when you drink fluids, the you know a regular human being physiologically expels maybe I think like twenty liters a day in fluid, more or less. Am I is that too might be more like for a normal person not doing sex of. Uh, um, Exertion, more on the order of let's we assume like two liters total. Two liters total. Yeah, okay, so yeah. two liters mm-hmm. total. So, so it's a lot less. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that a lot of times in fluid resuscitation they get upwards of twenty liters. Mm-hmm. So what kind of what kind of pressure and stress does that place on the body, and specifically the kidneys, if if they're not working as well? It's a great question. One aspect of burn patients that makes them different is the fact that in a the reason they need this extra fluid is that their capillaries become permeable and leaky in a state that really is unmatched in almost any other disease state, apart from maybe acute pancreatitis. So to the point that basically, say you give a liter of IV fluid, maybe only 10% of that fluid will stay in the intravascular space. The remaining 90% of that fluid will go out into what we call the third space, whether it be the interstitium or other body compartments. So uh, even though you give you know a lot of this fluid, the key organs, the heart, the kidneys, the brain, only sees a small percentage of fluid. And that's why there's such a need for massive fluid resuscitation in the first 24 to 48 hours of these patients. Interesting. And, you know, some of the complications that you discussed, how, how, can, the, how can, can burn physicians start to look to overcome those things? And actually, let me take a step back. What happens if we don't find ways to, uh, you know, accept that challenge of finding ways to innovate over over these current obstacles. So currently we have surgical means of treating compartment syndromes once that are identified in terms of doing various releases such as escharotomies, fasciotomies, or um, exploratory laparotomies to open up the abdominal compartments, or ask our neurosurgical colleagues to do craniotomies to help expand, you know, do, relieve the pressure in the brain. But prevention is always far easier than treatment. Um, so one of the challenges often is diagnosing when a compartment syndrome is about to happen. But probably the best step would be to avoid getting to a situation where compartment syndromes can form. And that in turn goes back to fundamental. Is there a way we can give enough resuscitation to our burn patients without risking these uh, potential sequelae of too much fluid resuscitation? You know, one of the uh, one of the things that I, I had heard, uh, I believe one of the nephrologists had mentioned, is that a lot of times when they have patients, whether burn or not, who have uh, high abdominal pressure, it's hard to get surgeons to come in and check if the abdominal pressure hasn't reached a certain certain level. You know, and then by that time, it's already too late. You know, do you feel that that's one of the one of the issues right now is that a lot of these things are being caught when it's too late? 
yes, they're for various systemic reasons or various variations in how the care of burn, burn patients is organized, and especially if it, that care is not being handled at a burn center, especially if it's a hospital that maybe only sees one or two burn patients a year. Um, sometimes the caring care providers are not as aware, aware of these potential consequences of compartment syndromes or too much fluid resuscitation. And oftentimes when it's when the di- compartment syndromes are diagnosed too late, um, there are lasting effects, especially in the case of the abdominal compartment syndrome, there can be lasting effects on the kidneys. Um, acute, um, to go further, talking about acute um, kidney injury, not only is it an issue of sometimes inadequate fluid resuscitation or too much fluid resuscitation in case of compartment syndromes, there also is, seems to be effects of what we call the cytokine storm. With a large burn injury, there is a massive cytokine release that occurs. And it's well known that a number of these mediators will often adversely affect um, blood flow to the kidneys. And this, in turn, will um, magnify the effects of kidney injury. Um, we're very fortunate that our nephrology colleagues do have dialysis, and you know every hospital I've been at, our nephrology colleagues have been eager and willing to you know help support our burn patients that get into renal failure. But the renal failure complicates the care immensely and prolongs their hospitalization. Um, the unfortunately can lead to lasting. Um, effects on their kidney function. I have had a number of burn patients who continue to require dialysis for months to years, even after they have finished healing from their burn injury. Interesting. You know, the thing that's that's really uh, fascinating about dialysis, and in a scary way, is that, to my knowledge, it's the only chronic condition that you can get discharged from the hospital with, you know, and, and, and be on, be on a, a machine for. Like, you, you don't see patients on ventilators or anything like that after being discharged if they have a chronic mm-hmm. condition. You know, for... For, for you to be able to better to better manage that, you know, what what do you think would be the kind of technologies or at least techniques that are that are needed? You know, it seems like there's there's more of a call to have more cross cross functional uh, collaboration between departments that seems to be happening, but I don't seem to see it too much at the conference level. Mm. So within the American Burn Associate community, there's been cutting-edge research by Dr. Kevin Chung out of the uh, Joint Base San Antonio burn unit there. Um, he has pioneered the use of early um, hemofiltration in burn patients, often within the first uh, days after burn injury, to not really, uh, even before they're showing signs of fulminant kidney injury, to basically filter out enough the cytokines that are injurious to the kidney. And by filtering out the cytokines using um, dialysis machines, he has been able to show in some of his research studies to um, decrease some of these um, harmful consequences of the burn injury. So so you're saying that, you know, so the patients who come in with burn, they, they put the patients on dialysis even though they don't need it just, just to filter out these cytokines. Exactly. Wow, that's fascinating. So of the cytokines, are there any specific cytokines that that are they're more you know definitely it's a cytokine storm but are, are there certain mm-hmm. ones that are more damaging to the kidney than, than others or has that not been identified yet uh, there are several um, I will confess I off the top of my head I am um, um, a little um, a little unable to remember but uh, once everyone does residency yes. people put, put, resi- <laughs> put immunology you know behind them uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, what are some of the exciting things that you've seen so far here here at the uh, ABA conference? Mm-hmm. Um, the every ABA conference, I think, is shines for its multidisciplinary approach. We're very blessed that we are one of the few medical conferences where we really have every discipline that attends, from physicians, nurses 
physical therapist, occupational therapist, pharmacist, nutritionist, psychologist, psychiatrist, firefighters, burn prevention advocates, and burn survivors. It's really one of the few medical units I'm aware of where you really get every specialty that attends and you know talks to each other um, at the various breakout sessions and meetings so that we can collaborate and identify new areas and new challenges that need to be tackled. Um, at this particular ABA so far, there have been a number of sessions that have really looked at this issue of how do we assess what quality burn care is. That is definitely one of the kind of raging issues that's going on in our field. Um, there have been a number of also discussions about how are we using some of these newer um, skin products to really help you know, close our bur treat our burn patients' injuries and to get them out of the hospital faster. So it's an exciting time in the burn field. And, you know, in your current practice in terms of, you know, techniques and new approaches, you know, has there anything, has there been anything that you've, you've adopted in the last few years that just made a, a major change in the way your patients have been doing? Currently, we are in um, working with a couple of these product companies. Um, we've, we've had the opportunity to use a resale, which um, is a means of... Um, expanding skin grafts. Currently, um, for the past several decades, we've been using mechanical means to what we call mesh our grafts so that we can expand them two to one, three to one, or four to one, which allows us to cover more wound with the same amount of skin. Um, the resell technology, which was developed by Fiona Wood in Australia and was just a few years ago recently approved for use in the United States, gives us the opportunity to quote unquote expand the skin up to 80 folds. So basically with say a two centimeter by two centimeter square of skin, we in theory could cover 320 square centimeters of skin, which would be huge because donor sites cause significant pain as well as healing issues for patients. So if we are able to cover patients' burn wounds with just a small amount of their own skin, that would be a huge advancement. And um, some of the early uses of resolder patients have been very promising so far. There's also um, other products in terms of, of what we call dermal substitutes, such as um, biotemporizing matrix. Another product that has emerged out of Australian research that we're using to see if that we can improve the quality of our skin grafts. Um, one of the challenges we have is that in our current paradigm, we often use use split thickness skin grafting, which will take the epidermis and part of the dermis to cover wounds. But the difficulty is that the quality of skin is heavily dependent on how thick we take the dermis. And for various logistical reasons, we usually take very thin dermis, which is good for donor site healing, but leads to problems down the road in terms of scarring for the grafted areas. Now you mentioned, you know, uh, the, the the use of uh, of certain paradigms, and one thing that we've heard from a variety of physicians is this bias called the uh, Semmelweis uh, uh, bias. Uh, so, for those of you who don't know, Ignaz Semmelweis was a uh, famous physician who uh, discovered hand washing, but it took literally two to three decades, sometimes four or five, in certain places, for it to be, you know, adopted. And the issue is that uh, medicine has this habit. Uh, and for, for re, uh, good reasons, of holding on to old paradigms. Are there any old paradigms that the burn community might be holding on to and needs to let go? That is a, a amazing question. Um, I will say briefly about Ignatius Silvice, there is a phenomenal biography describing his challenges that was written by Sherwin Newland, uh, a surgeon who was a great historian of surgery back at Yale. So I would highly recommend that book. Um, and we'll leave that in the show notes for sure. Thank mm -hmm. you. But in terms of some of the paradigms that are probably sub subject to change at this time, um, 
given the rise of new products such as Nexobrid, Resell, B-Team, and others, we may be at a point where rather than excising and grafting every wound, we may be at a point where, frankly, it may be better to um, enzymatically debride the wounds, go for less surgery, allow the patients to heal them with the resell, and then with some of the reconstructive advances that have been made with uh, laser treatments and other reconstructings, we might be able to deal with the scars more readily now than we could have 20, 30 years ago. There's some talks at some of the Shriners hospitals that perhaps, especially for kids with smaller burns, rather than subjecting them to a surgery to excise and graft the wounds, we allow the wounds to heal with scarring and then treat the scars, and that can be less traumatic and provide better functional outcomes for the kids. So that's one, I think, major paradigm changing from a burn surgeon point of view. Other paradigms that have been kind of forced upon us in terms of change has been the use of our opiates. I, was, I think you would find at most hospital burn centers, the burn unit is probably one of the highest users of opioids just because burn injuries are among the most painful experiences any human can experience. But given the concerns of the opioid crisis in our country, um, we're having to find new and, and different approaches to help address a patient's pain, but without the deleterious effects of opioids. Interesting. And you said something very interesting. I have to point out. So you said that one of the paradigms is getting away from the surgery and excision of the skin and, and allowing it to heal. So you're a surgeon. You're saying that we might have to let go of doing surgery and focus more on healing, which is impressive because I think Osler said it, that the first rule, you know, first duty a physician has is to educate the Mattises not to mm -hmm. take medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And so do you feel like with with new technology, new techniques, it's allowing physicians, surgeons alike to go back to whence they came, which is less about procedures and more focus on healing? Um, I think it's both a step back, like you said, in terms of really focusing on what's the best for the patient, as well as the future, in terms of then turning our attention to some of these long-term challenges that burn patients face. Um, one way that sur I, I had it described to you by my mentor is that surgery is a powerful tool, but you know, in the end, we are all doctors, and our mission is to you know, heal and to treat our patients so that if maybe if we're using our surgery toolbox less often, we can use other toolboxes to help our burn patients with other aspects of their condition. Interesting. Now, overall, you know, in terms of letting go of old paradigms and moving forward, do you feel like the burn community is a little bit better than the, you know, perhaps other areas of medicine moving forward on this, or is there still some resistance? Um, I think the burn community is like other communities in medicine in that um, we are all, um, you know, very much reliant on our previous experience to take care of burn patients. And it can be very difficult to break away from those paradigms when we know those techniques work for keeping our patients alive and getting them to a point where they can return to the community. Uh, other challenges are that there are, it's a relatively small community. There are only about 125 burn centers in the United States. And at most, each burn center has two to four burn centers. So maybe there are only about 600 of us you know, in the US practicing. And not all of us practice burns full time. We're often also you know, covering trauma or doing general surgery or, other, or plastic surgery careers. So um, that's another challenge. But it's also an opportunity because with our different backgrounds, we can bring in new advancements from the different fields to bring them to this issue of the burn patient. Yeah. Um, other aspects that also provide a challenge are the fact that there are advancements in a lot of these other fields, and sometimes it does take time for that knowledge to disseminate within the burn community. Like, for example, there's been an explosion in the number of wound care products available in wound care clinics, um, but a lot of burn centers don't 
do wound care, you know, in terms of dealing with patients with chronic wound care. So sometimes the sharing of knowledge from those fields takes time. Interesting. You know, with patients that come in uh, who, are, who are burned patients, what are some of the like major hurdles in terms of complications that come up that that prolong and, and complicate the you know the process? Because you have enough already to deal with just with the burn itself. What other complications come up that you know make make it a, a much more serious matter than it should be? Um, the burn injury is fascinating um, from a pathophysiologic point of view that it's an injury to the skin, but that injury to the skin can have effects on pretty much every organ system. Um, oftentimes, burn patients who are involved in a house fire or in a fire in a control lease will have inhalation injury, where the smoke and the toxic chemicals and the heat of the smoke can cause quite dramatic and severe injury to the lungs. Um, the um, other downstream consequence of that cytokine storm from the injury can affect the kidneys, the liver, um, even muscle mass. Um, they lead to a hypermetabolic response, which can lead to um, catabolism and breakdown of lean muscle mass, which can in turn lead to patients, if they're not being um, adequately exercised or given hypermetabolic agents, can lead to patients being able to, just within a matter of a few weeks, not having the strength to get out of bed. Um, other challenges can be the fact that the need for nutritional support in these burn patients. Um, burn patients sometimes need twice as many calories as an uninjured person, so it's not uncommon for us to need to place feeding tubes and for a burn patients to receive months and months of nutritional support through that feeding tube. Um, I fed burn patients up to 5,000 calories a day just because they needed that much energy and extra protein in order to um, handle the hypermetabolic response and the wound healing needs of their injuries. And, and along with that, you usually you administer a lot of fluid resuscitation as well? In the initial phases, but then the challenge that becomes after that initial 24 to 48 hours, um, how do we you know, give them enough fluids so that we can account for the insensible losses that patients are losing from their open wounds, but at the same time, not so much fluid that we can cause problems with pulmonary edema or other issues. And then longer term, um, making sure that we can account for the changing fluid situation of our patients because as their wounds get closed with skin grafts and other means, their insensible losses decrease. Interesting. And, you know, in dealing in dealing with these with these patients, is it is it the first twenty four hours and forty eight hours that, that you're you're most concerned? What what keeps you up at night as a, as, a, as a surgeon? And I know there's a lot of things you can you know. I know I ask kind of like a Pandora's box question, but you know. No, it's a great question. Like in that first 24-hour period, very much how the fluid resuscitation is going is a great concern. We follow a number of parameters when we're watching our patients in that initial 24-hour period, including the urine output, um, laboratory markers such as lactic acid, base deficit, creatinine. We're also looking at hemodynamic parameters such as arterial pressures. Um, a number of different burn centers use different invasive means to assess kind of the intravascular fluid status as well as the cardiac function of the patient. For example, example, either pulmonary artery catheters or what we call picocatheters. Some um, of the some centers are now starting to use um, serial ultrasound assessments of the vena cava as well as the heart to assess how our resuscitation is going as well as effects of cardiac function. So um, there's a lot of tools in our toolkit, but it's also a lot of data to kind of integrate periodically. Um, we're always mindful of the risk of compartment syndrome. And then on top of all this, oftentimes the there's a delay in the families of these patients finding out about how injured their patients are and arriving to the hospital. So that is often a different challenge that we face, communicating and reassuring these families at the same time the gravity of the injury, 
the need for oftentimes prolonged hospitalization, but at the same time giving them hope to know that, you know, we do have the means to help these patients oftentimes. Um, rarely for those patients that are so severely burned that it's clear that uh, medical efforts are futile, then the different challenge emerges in terms of communicating to families that no matter how much we do, there really you know, is no hope for their loved one. And then kind of helping them through that process of changing the goals of care to comfort management. Now, while you're doing uh, the fluid resuscitation and then getting all these different labs, like are the, you mentioned a variety of different markers and labs that, that you that you look at. Yes. Any any in particular that are that are definitely the gold standard that you you teach your residents to always look at? You ask a great question. Um, there is not one lab study or marker that has been shown in any burn clinical trial to be the gold standard. That being said, I think every burn center definitely follows urine output, even though there are difficulties with using urine output as the sole marker. Why is that? Um, uh, you know, in our society, we have a number of patients who live with chronic kidney injuries. So we often, so every once in a while, we'll get a patient who's already on dialysis baseline who gets injured in a burn injury. So then all of a sudden, we are no longer really able to use urine output as a way to assess resuscitation in that patient. Um, in addition, it's not a direct correlation between the intravascular fluid status of the patient and the urine output. That aforementioned cytokine storm seems to affect some patients more than others, and some patients' uh, kidney function can be seriously, de seriously depressed for several hours after the injury. So there's not always that correlation between giving more fluid and seeing increased urine output. You know, and so March was a kidney month, so we spent a lot of time and learned a lot about kidney, and we, we, were, we were really surprised to see how how important urine output was, um, but you know, in the event where you don't have a, a patient with chronic kidney uh, in, uh, uh, failure and you you can't have reliable urine output, is, is it in fact reliable? Because for some reason, and I I, I even remember this in uh, back in medical school, it seems that that's you know that's the last vital sign to be really automated. Like you know, there's all kinds of tools and, and digital technologies for that, except right now for urine output. And there's different companies that are coming out with things for it. But what what's you know, if you have access to urine output, is it actually reliable right now? And if you know, if so, why? And if not, why? I would say that all of us in the field use urine output for those patients that had you know normal kidney function prior to the injury. But I think most of us will also know that sometimes it doesn't always correlate perfectly with the, re the resuscitation efforts of the patient. So I would say we use it with an asterisk, as it were. Um, again, th this is an area that is in um, need of gr greater research in terms of you know, being able to identify from the start of the injury which patients are those that we won't be able to use urine output perfectly. This is where I think genomic screening is going to come in. There's already been talk in the trauma community of doing genomic screens of trauma patients once they arrive. And I suspect five to 10 years, that will be part of the standard for um, burn patients as well. Um, there's already been great work done by Ron Tompkins and other folks to really look at this genomics profile of injury. And um, it's taking time to really use the fruits of that clinically, but I think that is one advancement in the future that I look forward to using. Now that's surprising, I've never heard that before. So mm -hmm. Why? So, what do what do genomics and, and a burn patient have have in common, though? That's mm -hmm. that's interesting. I think for for other infectious diseases and diseases in general, we've heard a lot about genomics. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I'm hearing it with a traumatic event that it's important. How would you use genomics? So, trauma and burns classically would focus on the impact of the injury on the patient, assuming that all patients had the same 
physiologic responses to injury. As it turns out, as we all know, you know, humans vary. You know, we obviously vary externally, which we can see. What we haven't been able to really appreciate until very recently was how much we vary in terms of our responses to injury, you know, such as in terms of you know, how much, for example, I, you know, IELTS, one, do we, you know, secrete in response to this level of injury, how much, you know, TGF is involved in terms of healing process down the road. And this is where I think um, the advances will really come in in terms of the translational research from the basic scientists to the bedside in terms of understanding, you know, the implications of a you know, genomic screen for, you know, the expected hospital course for our patients, and in turn using that knowledge to tailor, to really custom tailor, um, you know, treatments for our patients. Kind of the dream of precision medicine, basically, to really customize, you know, the medical care for each patient's unique physiology and pathophysiology. We're not there yet, but there are definitely efforts being made at a number of centers to really get to that point. Fascinating, fascinating. Do you feel like at some, you know, some point in the future, there's going to be more? Uh I guess, uh, computer science and data science-based uh, lectures in medical schools so that medical students start learning how yeah. to apply and use these sort of things? Already there. In fact, you know, really? every time I talk to pre-medical students who I mentor, I tell them, definitely make sure you've got your statistics training. Make sure that you have some comfort with data science. And if you have any interest in that, I encourage that actually as that, that students should think about doing that, at least as a minor, if not a major, because I think, you know, those medical professionals who have the comfort with data management, data sets, will be, you know, really the pioneers of the next revolution in medicine. Wow, fantastic. Well, you know, we're getting close to wrapping up, and we really appreciate you spending time with us. But, you know, for those who want to perhaps follow you and and, and engage with you, where's the best place to find you online? Absolutely. So you can find me a number of ways. I'm accessible um, via Twitter. My handle is ManhattanBurndock. I also use LinkedIn, um, Instagram to a much lesser extent, but I'm also available at through the Whale Cornell website. I can be reached via email there. And I welcome inquiries, especially from um, pre-medical students and medical students who might be interested in um, looking at a career in burns. Um, I was inspired by a burn surgeon you know, over 15 years ago to get into this field. And one of the challenges we have in our field that it's not a field that a lot of clinicians A, know about and B, are drawn into. So we are always looking to, you know, to cultivate that next generation of burn specialists. So if you have any interest, please, please reach out to myself and other burn care specialists around the country, and we will be more than eager to welcome you to our community. Wonderful. Dr. Chang, hey, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Omar, for this opportunity.